Hey, everybody, this is Gene Martin. Welcome back to another episode of BizBooks, where we talk to great business authors about the great business books that they have written. Uh, my guest today is Matt Watkinson. Matt is the author of The Grid, the decision-making tool for every business, including yours. Uh, Matt, first of all, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks, Gene. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here. Matt's website is matt-watkinson.com. Um, Matt, first of all, let's just get a little background on you and how you came to write this book. Tell us about yourself. Well, The Grid is, um, is my second book, um, which followed on uh, from the, the first book, which was called The 10 Principles Behind Great Customer Experiences. And my background uh, was in designing websites, software, apps, that kind of thing. Uh, that's what I what I did for the first uh, ten or so years of, of, of my career, and um, over time, as that industry evolved, the challenge became joining all of those different channels and touch points together into a kind of more cohesive and coherent customer experience, which is um, what I found myself doing and what I wrote my first my first book on this book of of customer experience principles. But when that book came out. Um, it, it kind of changed the nature of the work that I was approached to do by, by clients. They didn't really see me as a doer anymore, somebody who could like roll up their sleeves and actually design something. Um, they saw me on a more kind of strategic plane. And one, one thing that became almost immediately apparent um, when that, that change happened was that a lot of people were knee-jerking or assuming that the kind of customer experience was a problem without um with, without really doing any kind of structured an, uh, an analysis and what i what i thought was was needed was a way for people to see ideally on a single page all of the factors that determined whether their business all of the factors that contributed, should we say, to the success of their business in one place, it would then allow them to have much more structured conversations or much more clear-headed analysis about, about where to invest their limited resources to, to best achieve their objectives, right? So, I mean, you can spend all the money you want on customer experience improvements, but if the problem is that nobody knows you exist, it's a waste of money, right? You can spend all the money on you want on advertising, but if the product is simply non-competitive and isn't going to meet people's needs, um, again, it, it, it's a waste of money. So what I was looking to do in creating the, the, the grid first and foremost was give people a means of, a, of, of seeing in a, in a single place all of these factors that might determine their success and so be able to prioritize where they focus their uh, efforts in order to um, in order to, to 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 help their business grow or succeed. And and a side effect of, of of doing that was that actually a few other use cases emerged that have proven to be extremely successful. So you or extremely helpful rather. So you can't you can in in a sense use the grid to identify the specific strengths and weaknesses of your business kind of like a super swap analysis if people are familiar with that mm -hmm. with that framework but you can also use it for uh in two other really valuable use cases one is if you're launching an entirely new venture or product line you can work through all the elements of the grid and, and make sure that you've at least considered them some of them will be unknowns because there's a lot of risk and uncertainty in entrepreneurship of course uh, and then also if you're maybe a larger organization and you're considering embarking on a project, you can use it to overcome this um, challenge that a lot of organizations have, which is that we're kind of in a silo. So you can use the grid as a means to consider the broader implications of a, of a decision beyond your or, or, or project beyond your immediate department. So you could say, okay, if we're doing this cost cutting initiative, for example, how might that affect our, our brand? Or how right. might that affect our imitability? Like if we outsource something, 
to some low-cost partner and all of our rivals of Alcor uh, have, have done the same thing. That might make us more similar to everybody else, which actually might undermine our, our long-term prospects. So if you see this, we call it a mental scaffolding for thinking through hmm. the decisions that you that you want to make, large or small, uh, and considering the, the, the broader ramifications of them. For, for those of you guys that haven't watched, you know, haven't read this book yet, you know, what, what Matt's referring to is, you know, is a grid. There, there are nine boxes that, that are headed up by, you know, desirability, profitability, longevity. Um, and then where th these boxes, you know, identify, you know, both customers, the market, you know, your organization. Um, it's like all in one place. It's, and although, you know, Matt, you've, you've simplified it into, sort of like this Jeopardy looking format, you know, it's actually quite complex. I mean, you dig in, you know, quite, quite deeply to some of the concepts before we dig into just a few of them, because I want to give it all away. Um, how'd you come up with this? Like where, where did this all come from? Yeah, well, there's, there's, um, <clears throat> it, it actually began with, with some events in my personal life. Um, I was going, I was having some, some difficulty with with knee pain actually uh, and i'd yeah i'd been to all sorts of different people to get to get help with that osteopaths physical therapists okay. massage you know i mean you name it and, and nothing worked i even actually i had surgery actually on both my knees and that didn't work either right. um and then i did end up seeing a a physical therapist who was kind of a cut above all of these other clowns who um, did a much more structured analysis of the problem and traced it back to these muscle imbalances in my uh, hips and and um, and glutes and lower back in that kind of area which was kind of pulling the muscles on the outside of the leg and putting tension on the on the outside of the knee which yeah. is causing the the pain now the difference between her and everybody else is that everybody else was looking at the knee which hurt and trying to figure out what the problem was whereas she was looking at the whole the body as an integrated system and identifying what the what the root cause of the problem was mm. so that it could be tackled to 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 maximum effect there's this saying in anatomy that the um it's the victim that screams, not the perpetrator. So where you often feel the pain is where you is, is not actually the, the, the source of the, of the problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I was intrigued by by her approach because it was very analogous to what we often experience in the workplace, right? That people don't tend to think in systems. They, they actually tend to think in a very reductionist way, uh, looking at each part of the business individually without necessarily considering how that might ladder up to a, um, a catastrophe or un unanticipated second order effects. So you see this all the time in, in, in business, the, the, the genesis of most major scandals or catastrophes is a fixation on one element of the system at the expense of, of the others so yeah to just give a couple of real world examples uh, to that if you look at this crisis that happened with wells fargo a number of years ago where uh, the ceo was insistent that, that customers should have eight wells fargo products <laughs> whether they really wanted them or not what what you're basically doing there is you're saying well we're going to fixate on sales volume at the expense of meeting our wants and needs regulatory obligations right for, firstly and, and regulation is, is 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 on the grid and at the expense of our brand and at the expense of our customer experience Mm. And frankly, at the expense of a massive fixed cost when the fines come in, yeah, true, and the constraints come in. So you know, these are all uh, parts of these are all things that are on the grid: customer experience, brand, yeah. Yeah. fixed costs, regulation. So what they might have done if they were smart 
is they might have said, well, hang on, if we do that, if we insist that every customer has eight products and we just create a load of fraudulent accounts, whether it makes sense or not, then how is that going to spread its tentacles across the rest of the grid? And they would very clearly have realized that this was a, a, a terrible decision to make. If we go back even further to the 90s, I think it was, um, Hoover, the, the vacuum cleaner company, ran a promotion where if you paid over a hundred pounds, if you bought over a hundred pounds of Hoover yeah. crap, like toasters yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. you would get two return flights to New York right. from London. Right. You just just look at that and you'd say, well, it almost bankrupted the company. <laughs> it, it did bankrupt the company. Yeah. And and and, it, and all of these senior executives lost their lost their jobs over it. So like you look at that and you go, well, okay. This is going to generate a lot of sales. Again, fixation on, on volume, but with a with a totally impossible variable cost associated with it. And the the immolation of our cash reserves, cash being another element of the grid, and and the destruction of our of our reputation yeah. in the process. So, you know, what you're seeing with any of these things, you know, you could talk about the Volkswagen uh, emissions thing. You could talk mm -hmm. about the Milan gouging people for the EpiPen. Uh, mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. you could look at any of these um, mm -hmm. catastrophes or problems that we have in the business world and not all of them make the headlines but most companies have them at some point and what you can ultimately trace it back to is a lack of consideration for second order effects of decision making yeah or lack in, other of words, in other words not considering the whole right i mean just being exactly. too focused on specifics and the whole point of the grid was to give people a way to to have yeah specialists from different disciplines having a kind of lingua franca or common reference point for considering the broader implications of their decisions, which is, is a, a major, major problem in, in organizations, large or small, and also to identify, you know, what their true constraints to, to performance are so that they could, could focus on them. Okay, so um, and we're gonna we're gonna dig into some of the concepts of the specific concepts of the grid itself because I had some questions for you on it. But my 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 big question I have for you is before we even talk about that is when Matt should we be pulling the grid out? I mean, there are a lot of decisions in a business. I mean, anything from where should our holiday party be to whether or not we should hire this person to be our controller to whether or not we should have a sales promotion that gives away two free round trip tickets, you know? You know so when, if, if I'm running a business, if I'm a CEO or I'm a, I'm a senior manager and I wanna to refer to the grid because I want some help in making this, what types of decisions would you say the, the grid is really best for? So, well, there's a couple of different ways of answering that. I think actually probably the most probably the most effective way of using the grid in in my in my experience or, or opinion is is not to necessarily print off the, the worksheets, we, we have those, uh, yeah. uh, or, or use the digital tools, you know, which are free and we, we have those too. And the first few times you should, you should use those and get familiar with them. But where I find the biggest value of the grid comes is when people just are aware of the structure in their mind, and it's kind of in, embedded in their brain in some way. And it just makes them think for a second, hang on, have we thought about the implications of this decision on, on that? So rather than making a kind of onerous box ticking exercise, it's more that it becomes a mental structure that, that, that you naturally start to apply or that it facilitates conversation. Yeah. And when you write a book, you, you'll come up with an idea like, like this you really don't know how people are going to use it whether people are going to like it whether they're going to hate it 
what context I'd end up using it in. And, and the grid, <clears throat> one of the things that I guess surprised me about the grid was that it, it's actually been more useful as a communication tool okay. and a decision-making tool, if that makes sense. So in my own company, we use, we use the labels of the items in the grid in everyday conversation amongst the management team when we're making decisions. We don't really often sit down and print it out and go through it because we're so used to, 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 that, to that structure, but we reference, <clears throat> pardon me, we reference all of the elements of the grid in our, in our daily business conversations. And when we talk about what we're doing strategically, anyone in, in, in the business can overlay what we're talking about over this kind of mental mental model and, and see why we're doing Got it. why we're doing what, what, what we're doing. And, and in fact, one of the things that I've kind of realized as a consequence of that is that most of what gets sold as strategy or most of what gets done as strategy is kind of needlessly needlessly complex. Like in our own business, for example, we're we're very focused just on a couple of on a couple of elements of the of the grid that have been our priority area for three years and will probably continue to be our priority area for the next three years, which is <clears throat> expanding our customer base by acquiring more customers. Sure. Because that's how you that's how you grow an agency business and minimize your 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 risk profile. Right. right? It's by having a broader base of customers. So what are we focused on? Well, we're focused on acquiring customers. That's pretty much it. Sure. You know, that's the end of our strategy conversation. Sure. Sure. You know, it seems to me like, you know, the grid itself is less of a of a blueprint and more of of a culture that you adapt in your country, in your company, you know? Um that it's it's just it, it gives you a framework for making decisions, um, you know that everybody can be involved in and communicating those decisions. Um, that was my my biggest takeaway from this. Let's let's go down into some of the specifics though, and and I'll jump around a little bit. But um, when you start digging into some of the details of the grid, you you talk about um, a guy named M Biver, who uh, you know him and a partner bought rights to Blancpain. Um, for like $15,000 a watchmaker, right? Sold it for $43 million um, 10 years later. Um, and then he also had some other successes in the industry as well. Phenomenal successes in the industry. And um, he, in your opinion, he is, a, is somebody that really understood the wants and needs of customers. Um, and you said, if your offering can be, re I'm reading this, if your offering can reflect the customer's values and social group, it can give it a magnetic, a magnetic appeal. So, mm -hmm. talk to us about you know, you know, wants and needs, and and you know how important that is as it relates to all the other you know specific things you should be considering on the grid. Okay, so for for context, um, the grid has three three columns that are the outcomes that every organization is aiming for. Desirability, if people don't want what we're selling, we've got a fundamental problem. That's column one. Profitability, if it costs us more to, to sell our stuff than we can charge for it, eventually we'll, 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 we'll run out of cash. So that would be the profitability. Then the third column is longevity, the, the longer we're making that profit for, um, the, the, the better, right? So those are the three columns. Well. When we talk about desirability, that first column, what's the foundation of, of desirability? The foundation of desirability is that people either want or need the thing that we're that we're that we're selling. Yep. Right. So yep. desirability actually emerges from the interplay of of, of of three things. It's the wants and needs that the customer has, the extent to which they are catered for by alternatives, so, so rivalry, and then the extent to which we are able to satisfy those wants and needs with our own offering. Mm. So for example, you might find that customers' wants and needs stay the same, our product stays the same, 
and the rival does it better, in which case our desirability goes down. You might see that once and needs stay the same, our product stays the same, and our rivals get embroiled in some silly scandal or have some supply chain issue, in which case our desirability goes up without us doing anything. Mm. You might find that the customer's wants and needs change and we respond better than our rivals to that and, um, and desirability goes up. We might even have a situation where we lead the customer. We don't ask them what they want or what they need. We take the risk <clears throat> to create something, some kind of visionary or extremely innovative product or service that then creates a want or need in, in, in the customer's mind. And they then, uh, they then you know, find that, that product or service highly desirable. In fact, you could argue that that's actually the best way of, of doing it. You take the risk and you, and you, you, you lead the customer, right? Mm -hmm. You innovate on behalf of the customer, as, as Jeff Bezos, I think, mm -hmm. I think called it. But the foundation ultimately is what does the customer want, want and need? And there are various aspects to that. You can, you can get into a whole ton of detail about what they, what they may or, 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 or may not want or need. But I think it's a, it's a truism that, and I, I'm sure this is a quote that I've liberated from somebody, but for the life of me, I can't remember who it is. People put their money where their aspirations are. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so understanding um, identity, understanding people's um, self-conception, understanding people's individual aspirations um, can obviously be a route to creating a, a, a really valuable brand and, and products that have a, a lot of a, a appeal for people. You know, you see this all the time that people put money where their aspirations are. People also buy things that are highly functional that they just need. Sure. You know, sure. So buy highly functional things that they need but don't want, you know, like accountancy <laughs> um, or, 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 or things like that. You know, the other aspect of that wants and needs box that um, I think is often massively overlooked is the... Um, adoption barriers piece, which is that sometimes people can want a product or service, but they, they there are insurmountable barriers to them right. being able to, to, to buy or, or, or use it, either it's training or it's the upfront cost or it, there's some other kind of, kind of challenge with it. And one of the things that has actually uh, um, been most valuable in the grid is the model, the, the sub-model in that chapter that goes into what those different adoption, adoption barriers are. Because we, I don't think we've ever had a client who's thought through those in any kind of systematic manner, and they they can be they they carry huge implications for businesses large and small. I mean, uh, I think the example that I use in the in the grid is talking about the the massive Airbus, the A three eighty, which is an amazing airplane, but you can't land it anywhere. Right. You know, or the the, the cost of adapting airports to take that airplane was you know into the hundreds of millions. And there are only some routes where where it makes sense. So obviously, the adoption barriers for buying a uh, an A three eighty Airbus are much higher than for buying a a, a a Dreamliner. And Airbus, you know, freely admit that they will never ever make back the investment in the A three eighty, and um, it's been discontinued, as as I understand it. So you know, that's you know, basically you can boil it all down. You can boil their problem down to adoption barriers. So should they have thought about adoption barriers? I'm sure they probably did. Right. And it's probably a bit flippant for me to say, well, you know, they should have just looked at that. But again, you see that almost every business problem tracks back to one of these very, very simple factors um, on, on, on the grid, which is what makes it immensely useful as a decision-making tool. I'll move, I'll move on to some other areas of the grid, but before we leave wants and needs, I mean, it, it's the first one you start with. It's in the upper left-hand corner. I mean, it's really, really the, you know, the core beginning of, of everything else that you're going to apply on the grid. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to say you have to establish what wants and needs are. Um, you know, most of my clients, um, and I'm sure most of your clients, I've got to be asking you like, well, how do we do that? You know, how do we establish what those wants and needs are? Where do we go? 
And what do you say to them when people ask you that question? It's not just something you pull out of your head. There's got to be some research involved or uh, some exercise involved to figure out what those wants and needs are. What, I'm just curious to hear if you have any advice on that. I've got a lot of thoughts on that particular topic and they've changed. Hmm. They've changed quite significantly over the last few years. I, I have a new book that's coming out next year that actually explains all of this stuff. But okay, I'd like to hear some of it. <clears throat> well, it, it, I'm just trying to think how to address the topic without going down a, 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 rabbit, a massive hole. rabbit hole. A yeah. rabbit hole. <laughs> um, the way that you discover what people want or need is to make something and see whether they buy it. Okay. Okay. It's really as, as simple as, as that. Or you you start selling the product before you've even made it to see whether people want to want to buy it. Right. Like I think the world so there is a lot that is not understood in the business world about risk and uncertainty. And if you're trying to innovate or you're trying to create a new product that is exciting, or you're trying to create something that is going to, to change the course of a market. You know, you can, you can pick any number of products that have, have done that, and you can pick any number of companies that aspire to do that. You are confronting massive uncertainty, mm. right? Right. And that uncertainty cannot be analyzed out. Right. Right. There's no way to determine it. There's no way to analyze out the massive uncertainties involved in entrepreneurship. The only way to, to do it is to, um, is to build something, a prototype, right. um, you know, or, or, or go off and, 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 and try and sell the idea to people and, and, and see what they say. It's a great, first of all, I, I, I'll stop you right there because again, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but that um, it, it, it's great advice. Um, and it's simplistic and it makes so much sense. I mean, you know, how many startups do you meet that come up with this great idea and it's still just a complete crapshoot as to whether or not it's filling any wants or needs out there until it actually happens. And, you know, some of my more successful clients, um, when they come up with new product lines or, you know, they decide to offer new types of services, they usually do it on a test basis, pilot programs, prototypes, like you said, to really see because, you know, we, we, we behave like we're in a bubble and sometimes we don't, you know, we think this is a great idea, but until the market actually shows us whether or not it is, we don't know until we're putting up some example. So Gene, I could, I, I could, I could make it, I could make the same argument in an even more pointed or blunt fashion right? for you, actually. Perhaps the biggest lie or perhaps the biggest delusion that's ever come out of the academic business community is the suggestion that opportunities are discovered. Whereas in fact, opportunities are made. Okay. If you believe that opportunities are discovered, that they are somehow buried like jewels in the market, mm. then your process becomes about trying to identify where those jewels are and excavate them yeah. in the same way that you might deploy enormous resources to identify where the best oil reserves are using all sorts of seismic technology and analysis and everything, right? You know what I think a great example of that is, you know, Matt, is uh, I think about Uber. I mean, you know, I just I just finished um, Super Pumped, which was another, it's a book all about Uber, it's a TV series now. Um, but when you talk about opportunities discovered, I mean, who would have thought about that? Would you put your teenage daughter in a stranger, in a stranger's car to be driven somewhere in a city? Um, as opposed to the fact that you know, they had to create that themselves and prove that the market existed. Do you agree? Well, exactly. So, so the point is that if you believe that opportunities are discovered, you put all of your effort and time and money on analysis, data gathering, and strategizing, right? right? Which doesn't really work. Right. Whereas right. if you believe that opportunities are made, you put all of your effort into making relationship something. building, <laughs> making something, trying something out, seeing what people think about it, running hypotheses and testing them, experimenting. And that's what entrepreneurs actually do, right? Yeah. So you need to get away 
from the idea, and this is particularly true of people's wants and needs, you know, that you can analyze your way into certainty about a product's potential. And the, the, the kind of irony of, of the whole thing is that the more people invest in that kind of thing, desk-based research, PowerPoint slides, blah, 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 the more confident they become in their analysis and the greater their risk exposure. You know, you see CEOs and executive boards yeah. signing off eight-figure sums for, for a project that's just purely based on speculation. Yep. You know, yep. uh, whereas if you just say, look, we're just going to try it and see if people like it and then scale up from there, you know, you, your, your risk profile is, 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 is much lower. So, yeah, if you want to know what people want, build it and see whether they buy it. But okay. do it in a way where the losses are affordable if they don't. Another item on your grid here that I want to pivot to, um, which which I thought was really important, and I, and I hope you do agree as well, is this is now the second row on the right, the imitability of a product. Um, a lot of people come up with you know their ideas or their products or their decisions, and I don't think they think deep enough into how easily that can be copied or done elsewhere. Um, and you know, you give you tell the story of Mirkot and Periscope and Twitter, and mm -hmm. I was hoping you could share that example with our with our viewers and listeners and how that relates to you know imitability on the grid wow well we really are going back a, a, a way now talking about periscope and, and yeah yeah i mean yeah. back in um, meerkat as well i remember that i mean that just that just disappeared once twitter you know gobbled them up well yeah i mean look the the, the, the story is a is a very simple one that um some people launched and made a, um, a video um, social media product that was that was a product to them, but it was a feature to a much larger, better funded and more powerful rival who already okay. had a massive audience. Right? So I guess the, 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 the parable is don't, or the, the message behind it is don't, don't make a product out of somebody else's feature. You know, like any more than you should make a torch app for the right. iPhone. Let me ask you. Let you me know, ask so, you about imitability, though. Is um, do you, you know, it could be a good thing, couldn't it? I mean, if you do have a good idea uh, or a good product, um, and you expect that it's going to be imitated, doesn't you know, imitating the product itself expand the market? Maybe even you know, and, and provide more opportunities for your product. Because it's not as if any one product is ever going to have a complete monopoly on a market. I mean, that's happens, but it's relatively rare. Do you know what I mean? Um, so could it could it not have benefits if your product is imitated? I'm curious to hear what you think of that. Well, I think imitability is um, It's, it's inevitable that you're going to be imitated if you have a successful product that, that opens up a new market, right? I mean, it's just, it's just sure. inevitable. Well, look at Zoom. Um, look at Zoom. I mean, Zoom is, you know, I mean, they weren't the first video conferencing application to come on the market. Um, yeah, right. I mean, Microsoft had Facebook, had Facebook Live. I mean, there, you know, plenty of, of, you know, WebEx and, you know, you go to webinar. But um, so the market was out yeah. there, but Zoom itself, um, just came up with a better model for getting you know their service out, and of course they they ran into some good luck with with the pandemic. Um, yeah, I mean, soon. But I don't think soon. they could have they could have done that if there wasn't a market already there for them. Like in other words, getting back to Meerkat, if if Meerkat had had, had, had a better model, maybe better management, they could have said, okay, Twitter with Periscope are going to do their thing, but we can, you know, they're, they're they've created awareness for this stuff. Uh, for online, you know, you know, video, you know, meetings or you know, whatever, and we can we can we can carve out a niche for ourselves. Do, do you follow what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think imitability is just a imitation is a, is a fact of life. Um, and the thing I suppose that interests me most about the 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 elements of the of the imitability uh, box is probably the concept of competitor lag, which is that given that imitation is, is inevitable, you just need to keep on trying to 
to push ahead and keep on forcing, uh, this is one strategy at least, uh, keep on forcing the um, your rivals into your into your slipstream. If by the time they've caught up with you, you've already moved on to something new or better or more exciting, then imitability becomes less of a less of a, a of a concern. And it's not something that I saw much written about elsewhere when I wrote the grid. It's the idea that speed is actually a viable strategy for imitability. Most people talk about you know kind of intellectual property or legal protection, patents, trademarks, and, and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But actually, um, or, or they talk about durable advantages, which are, well, there aren't actually very many of those, and, and durable is perhaps not the best word for them, because right. they're only, they're, they're never fully durable, really, unless you're a state-backed monopoly. But um, yeah, the idea that speed is, is an alternative to, to, to competition would be a good one. And I think you probably see that with, um, or have historically seen that with, with, with I think Tesla would, would probably be quite yeah. a good example of that. Like there, that's a great example. That's a great example. They've just been quicker at bringing new ideas, new features, less risk averse with with putting new technology on the market than than some of their rivals. But obviously, there's no doubt that the others are catching up. You know, the they're all, they're all imitating them. Uh, well, they're not just Im imitating them. I think arguably you could say that some of them are doing a better doing a better job. Mm. Mm. The panel gaps on a Porsche Taycan are certainly better than on a Model Three Tesla, but it's a lot more expensive. Isn't it? So um, oh, no, that's a great that's a great example, Tesla. And yet, um, Tesla is um, you know their commitment is I don't think they 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 know they're not going to own the electric vehicle market. So they have, you know, the market share that they're shooting for, and they're going to shoot for that as long as they have a good product to offer. But they couldn't, they they could not expand and meet their long-term goals if they weren't imitated, because you know, through this imitation comes government regulation, more power stations, more you know, brand aware, awareness of the you know efficacy of, of electric vehicles. It helps Tesla by being imitated. So I guess that was my point. Let me let me move on as well. I, I'm sorry, I just have so many questions and because it's such a great book. Um, oh, you know, you. On on your your grid as well. Right in the middle, you've got um, bargaining power, and you talk in your book about the power paradox, um, the importance of, of bargaining power for your profitability of your company. Tell us tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. Oh, sure. Well, the concept is very simple, and this was the uh, kind of, uh, I remember learning Porter's Five Forces at, 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 at business school, where this was a, a, a kind of key element of it. But basically, the, the, the basic point is extremely simple. Your business is sandwiched between your suppliers on one hand and your customers on the other hand. Right. And whilst you're co cooperating, you, there's also negotiations and bargaining that, that that occurs, right? So customers have more bargaining power if they have more choice and there's less distinctiveness or differentiation between the, 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 the products. Right. Suppliers have, have more negotiating power if they're the only person who can supply you the things that you, that you need. And we have more negotiating with our suppliers if we order more, typically. If we, if we account for 80% of the supplier's revenue, we can effectively dictate the, 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 the terms to them, right? You also have regulation in there as something that aims to inhibit or in fact, occasionally increase the buying, the bargaining power, sorry, of, of certain people within that uh, arrangement. So bargaining power is an important consideration because some companies have, so, well, why is it an important consideration? It's an important consideration along a couple of different axes, actually. You've got the financial axes, which is what historically people have thought about. And this is what Porter was always kind of crapping on about is you need to use your bargaining power to increase your profitability. But yeah, kind of, but you also need to acknowledge that trade and business involves social capital as well as financial capital. And occasionally managing, well, not occasionally, in fact, managing relationships with your customers and your suppliers 
involves deploying and using and conserving that that social capital as well. Yeah. You know, so needlessly yeah. exploiting your suppliers <clears throat> to improve your profits is always going to find its way back to some other element of the grid and not typically in a very good way. Yep. Right? Like they'll cut corners. If you start squeezing them, they'll cut corners and, and compromise quality or they'll drag their feet or they'll find some other way to stick a blade in you. With your customers, if you, you know, have punitive contracts with them, it creates this kind of concept of, that I, I wrote about a link in the book of accrued resentment Yep. which eventually boils over and, and has kind of catastrophic consequences or certainly can do. Uh, and you see that not just in business, but in, in politics, obviously. Yep. So, yeah, my, my sense of our bargaining power is that you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of the financial uh, implications of it. And a lot of businesses have very savvy procurement strategies because of this. They never give one supplier too much work in, in, because then they're kind of beholden to them. They're, they're very careful about these policies, but what they're less careful about is the social capital aspects of, of, of bargaining power um, and how they, how they treat their customers and suppliers and how that affects brand perceptions and how that affects quality elsewhere. I mean, we've had... Um, Uh, let, let, let me give you a very, very simple example of, sure. of this in action. Sure. We use a lot of freelancers and associate consultants in our business. Okay. And we pay them in full on the day of the invoice. We don't pay them 30 days later or 60 days later or say we'll pay them 30 days later, but actually pay them 60 days later we do, or we do the not bother exact paying same them. Thing. We do the all. exact same thing. Go ahead. And the reason that we do it is because goodwill and social capital mean a lot in our in our business and That's they right. produce better quality work and it gives them less to worry about and it makes them happier and it makes them say nice things to their friends about our company correct and so if you look at the grid you see like okay we have a weaker cash position uh, down in the bottom right hand side mm -hmm. right we have not used our bargaining power with suppliers there in the middle, mm -hmm. but it creates better awareness uh, in the top top right up there. Um, it creates a stronger uh, brand appeal. It creates a better proposition. And also from an imitability point of view, it means that those staff, many of whom are among the best in the world at what they do- They're not gonna leave you. Are not gonna leave us, right? Yeah. So if you look at the grid as a whole, it's the right decision. But if you look at the bargaining power box only, it's a bad decision. And this is another great example of systems thinking versus reductionist thinking. Great example. If you're some bureaucrat in procurement, you're probably thinking we could improve our cash position by using our bargaining power here. We should squeeze it. Yeah. But they're not looking at the, at the whole. And in fact, we're often on the receiving end of that from those kinds of people at, at, at other organizations from from. from from time to, to time. So it's a really good example actually of how all the different elements of the grid kind of come together and how thinking about the broader consequences of things is, is a much better a, path to, to making making good decisions. It's a great example. And you know, I'm thinking right now, even of a, you know, I have a client that has got 150 employees, they've got a purchasing manager, and the purchasing manager's one job is to try and you know beat the shit out of their suppliers for best prices possible and quickest delivery times. And if that purchase manager would be considering the impacts of his negotiations decisions over the company as a whole by looking at the grid, um, I think his job would be a lot different. And, um, you know, and, and I think that it's important to take away that your employees need to be making those decisions with the company overall than just how it's impacting your specific little niche in the company. Um, Matt, before we, you know, before we wrap things up, I just have a couple more your questions for you. First of all, I'm, so I'm a CPA, you know, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm interested in the numbers themselves and I, you know, right down the middle, you've got your whole profitability column. Um, obviously we talked about bargaining power. We talked, you know, we haven't talked about revenues. We haven't talked about costs, but you do in the book, share some thoughts about cash and cash management um, and how it impacts, you know, a business over the whole. And I was, I was wondering if you, you could share with our viewers just, some of these thoughts on cash management um, that they can take away with them 
um, when they're considering the impacts of all their decisions on their organization? Yeah, sure. Well, I, Gene, I guess one of my great hopes for the grid was that it would provide a means of turning specialists into generalists. Yeah, yeah. And, and that would apply universally, right? So you're a CPA. Well, I think it's important that if you're if you're in a, in accounting or finance, you have a cursory understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about the importance of brand, yep. when we talk about the importance of customer experience, or when we talk about values and, and beliefs and, and, and that kind of thing, which can be on the softer side. Agreed. Likewise, I think it's very important that if you're a designer or a product developer or involved in customer experience or in, in any of those other things, that you have an awareness of the, that you're financially literate, basically, that you understand concepts like contribution margin, you understand the distinction between a fixed cost and a variable cost, you understand the distinction between capital expenditure and operating expenditure, not least of all, because ultimately everyone at a certain point in their level of promotion becomes an accountant, right? Like when you when you are promoted into the C-suite or the, the, the chief executive chair, you are expected to know your way around a balance sheet, cash flow statement and a P&L. A lot of people, right. it's their, their first exposure to them, right? So it's never too early to start building financial literacy. And you also see that Again, a number of crises are caused by people making product decisions without considering the financial implications of them. There was a good book, on, I think, on the turnaround of Lego, brick by brick, where they were saying that they, they, you know, they allow people to go off and create these wild different products. This was, you know, probably in their darkest hour before their amazing turnaround. Right. Of course, the cash, the implications of carrying working capital implications of carrying all these different parts and things in in stock without really knowing whether people were going to buy them were, were financially kind of catastrophic so the, the the broader aim was not necessarily to educate people on the the merits of of cash flow yeah you you know you need enough cash to cover your 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 bills and thinking about cash flow is extremely important it was more the broader idea of are you financially literate Probably the more important point of, of, of it in, in the grid and the thing that certainly shocks people the most is the, the non-linear impact of price changes on profit. Like when you show people that, let's call it a 2% reduction in price can cause a 20% reduction in profit because when you discount price, you're actually, it has a much bigger impact on the amount of profit that, that, sure. that, that each product makes. Most people have never run those calculations. Sure. sure. So when they see them, they're like, holy fuck, yeah. like look how much money we've we're throwing away with right. this mad discounting. Or right. look how much more money we could make if we just increased our prices by one percent, three percent, or two yeah. percent, or or whatever, they just don't think about it. Right? right. So actually the pricing element of the of the grid has been enormously eye-opening for a lot of people who have literally never given it a second thought. They just pick a price and go with it and then they never revisit it and then they never adjust it. So, yeah, I mean, I was really hoping that financial literacy would improve as a consequence. And I think that's that has been a benefit for, for a lot of readers of the book. Matt Watkinson is the author of The Grid, the decision-making tool for every business, including yours. Matt is also, besides being an author and a keynote speaker, Matt, you run a, I, I apologize, I didn't even mention you, you run a design agency called Methodical. What does Methodical do? Yeah, Methodical is, um, is the business that I co-founded with my, my best friend, Ben. We've been working together for 15 years and almost all of our work is around uh, customer experience in, in improvements and uh, new product development and strategy and that kind of thing. People come to us for the CX work, right. but they choose us because we understand the grid. I think we understand right. we're much more commercially minded or commercially astute or aware of 
other aspects of a very successful business and a lot of other people in that space. We understand marketing, we understand brand building, we understand finance, we understand business strategy. And so feeling like these CX activities are connected much more tightly, more tightly coupled to other aspects of what it takes to create a successful business is, is hugely appealing for them. So yeah, that's what we do. We've got clients all over the world. Well, not all over the world, that's a bit of a stretch. Europe, <laughs> Europe and America, Different country, in Africa right. or Asia, but um, yeah, uh, certainly Western Europe and, and across the, the across America, and um, yeah, and people dotted, scattered around all, all over the place from Spain to New Zealand. So, right. yeah. Well, I want to wish you best of success. I, I also want to thank you for coming on, you know, and, and talking to me. Um, what you said, you just mentioned earlier that you were working on a new book. Is that something that's imminent? Uh, <laughs> well, the book is, uh, it's a bit of a difficult one to answer. The book is, is written and, and, and edited, but we're into the kind of foreign rights discussion for all the different markets and launch schedules. I think it's going to be next year. Got it. Okay. Well, um, I'm, I'm excited about it. It's going yeah. to be the best of the three. I'm glad to hear that. We'll definitely have you back to talk on it. So Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Everyone, you've been watching and listening to uh, the most recent episode of Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with another conversation with a great author of a great business book. Talk to you then. Take care. <laughs>